Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, the breath that you give us to praise you. Thank you for um, just bringing us here this morning, Lord, to um, to worship you, to hear from your word, um, to be encouraged, to be challenged. Um, Father, I pray that our our hearts, our ears, our minds would be open to hear from your word. Um, I pray that you would speak through Kevin and this passage in Romans, Lord, um, that we would be um, changed to be more and more like you. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Thank you, guys. So, I know some of you guys are probably a little disappointed today after your idol went down yesterday afternoon. As I frequently like to remind you guys, it's okay. Okay, the world will go forward. Jesus will still return. He's still living and reigning whether the Gators win or lose. Okay, so, uh, but it was an exciting, fun game to watch and uh, we watched as we celebrated my son's sixth birthday. Uh, he turned six today, and so we're, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, real quick story for you guys. Uh, I had someone ask me like two weeks ago, like, Kevin, why do you use the Britney Spears microphone um, when, you're, when you're preaching? And, uh, and I didn't have a great answer for them. I was like, oh, just kind of, you know, it's just kind of what they, they chose to do. But I realized now it's because there's men like Luke who are as tall as Goliath, and so, like, if I were to come up here and have to stand up here, uh, it wouldn't go well. Uh, plus, you guys know that I'm doing this all the time when I preach. And so, holding the mic wouldn't go very well as either. Hey, got, got two things to, to kind of make you guys aware of. I know that, that uh, Brian mentioned one of these things earlier, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and plug it again. Um, if you are interested in serving here at Aletheia, if you've been here a couple weeks and you're like, I, I really love what's going on here, uh, I love... Uh, coming and worshiping with you guys. Um, we would love for you guys to get involved in some way. Um, out on the information table, right when you walk in, um, there, there are these serve cards where you can put down your name, uh, your information, like your, your email, your phone number, whatever else. Just go ahead and, and head back there after the service. Stephen or someone else will be standing there if you have any questions. But just fill one of these out and we'll get you guys plugged in somewhere, serving somewhere, whether you have some musical talents or you've got some audio video talents where you wanna help us do things or if you're interested in helping out with the website or or teaching or whatever it may be, we'll do that. And then also, uh, you guys may have noticed that some of us have these things on our cars, these Aletheia Church, uh, just, I don't even know what they're called, stickers? 
vinyls. Thank you. For, thank you for whoever knew what that was. Um, they're, they're out there on the information desk as well, and they're free. We would love for you guys just to take one and put it on your car. Um, great opportunity for people to kind of see, like, oh, there's this church that starts with the letter A, and I have no idea how to pronounce it. Maybe I'll look that up online and figure it out. And so uh, we'd love for you guys to take a few of those and stick it on your car. Uh, word to the college students, if your parents own the car, please check with your parents first before you stick it on there. I don't want to get any phone calls being like, why did you let my kid ruin my Mustang or whatever it is. So... Um, Anyway, thank you guys for being here. Uh, my name's Kevin. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. I'm one of the pastors here. Appreciate you guys being here this morning, uh, especially on this, this holiday weekend. I know it's a, a weekend where most people like to go home and spend some time with family. Uh, we are in week two of our study in the book of Romans, and I mentioned last week that we'll probably be in the book of Romans for, for the better part of the next year, uh, especially because we'll be taking a break during the month of December. And so um, last week we looked at the first eight verses of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And, and we kind of spent some time breaking that down, but we also uh, did an overview of the entire book, making sure we understood kind of what was the logical progression that we were going to see as we studied uh, this book together. And what we saw like in the first kind of 12 chapters of Romans was Paul's Paul really kind of answering this thesis of what is the gospel, who are human beings, and how do we relate to God? And so he kind of just logically works through this defense of who God is, who human beings are, and how we relate to God and what the bad news about that is, is that, that you and I are, are broken, sinful, rebellious humans uh, standing before a, a God who declares us guilty because of our sin, and yet that's not the end of the story, that that same God sent his only son as a propitiation for our sins, as, as someone who would put himself in our place, right, and, and both pay the penalty of God's wrath for our sin and rebellion, but also give to us and credit to us his righteousness, his goodness, his standing before God. And so that the, the good news of what the Bible teaches is that, yes, we are broken, but God rescues us, right? And that is really for the first 12 chapters of the book of Romans is what Paul is going to lay out. He's going to answer objections and, and questions people are going to naturally have about the good news and what it means. And so he spends 12 chapters laying that out, and then he gets to chapter 13, chapter 12, and he's going to shift to practical living, right? In light of being a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, what does it look like then to live my life centered around the gospel, what does it look like to be in church community? What does it look like to still have sin dwelling within my members and yet be putting that sin to death and walking in joyful obedience to Christ? And so the text this week is going to take on a little bit of a different perspective because last week was this really in reality just a greeting and an introduction and although it was just a greeting and an introduction it also focused quite a bit on God and what he's done. Remember how I finished up the sermon last week by saying that the introduction itself to the book of Romans had six 
key things mentioned about the gospel and who we are in light of that and, and what God is trying to communicate to us. We said that, that, that the source of the good news, that the, the scripture itself testifies that God is the source of the good news and that the focus of that good news is on Jesus and the work that he has done. And so to focus on anything else is to lose sight of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ and to be accepted, right, as sons and daughters of God. And then we talked about how the, the proof of the gospel was in the fact that Christ demonstrated that God had accepted all these things through his life, death, burial, and subsequently his resurrection. And then we focused in on the purpose of the good news, right, which is to rescue and redeem us, broken people who by no means are able to get to God on our own. As I mentioned last week, every major world religion teaches the same thing just in a slightly different manner. And, and whether they believe in one God or thousands of gods, what they teach you is that you and I are not as powerful as that God, but we can achieve unity with that God in some way, shape, or form by our works and our performance. That if you study Hinduism, right, we, we know that Hinduism primarily teaches that you and I work off bad karma and, and try to work and do good things to achieve good karma so that we might continue to kind of progress through the caste system so that we might eventually achieve union with Vishnu or whatever god you've set up as the chief god that you're going to follow in Hinduism, Right? If you study Islam at all, you know that we're supposed to follow the five pillars of Islam so that Allah might accept us right and invite us into his presence right if you're familiar with buddhism at all and any of the eastern religions that kind of have broken off that it's similar to following what's called the eightfold path where you empty yourself and think about yourself less and and worry about those things less so that you might serve others and that will help you achieve a higher state of nirvana right where you can be connected with the creator right but all of these religions teach a similar thing where you and I must work and do and try to be better people and if we work hard enough we might just be able to earn God's affections and attentions toward us and yet the scripture teaches you and I that the God of the Bible who created and set everything in motion is in fact holy and good and separate from us as sinners and rebellious. And yet, says, if it's up to you and your performance, not a one of you will ever be able to stand in my presence. If you see throughout the Old Testament, anytime someone comes into the presence of God, what is their response? Fear and trembling. Right? That to behold and gaze upon the holiness of God will immediately cause in you a recognition of your own sinfulness and brokenness. And so it's impossible for you as imperfect without something supernatural happening to you to become perfect. And yet the scripture teaches us that is exactly why Christ came and died in your place so that, that you might be born again into him and therefore adopted as sons and daughters of God receiving an inheritance. 
enjoying him and being in his presence for eternity. So that is the, the purpose of the good news, to rescue us from ourselves and our own sin. And then we saw that the recipients of the good news were not just Jews who Christ went to first, but also the rest of the world. And then lastly, we looked at the why. Right? And there's many things thrown around like, why, why would God do this? Right? He does it because he loves me. Right? Well, that's true. Right? He does it because he needs me. No, that's not true. Right? He doesn't need you. Right? But the ultimate why of the good news of Jesus Christ, and it actually really is good news, God saves because it brings glory to his name so that we might worship him. Right? And so, in just eight brief verses, right, this is what Paul kind of lays out to you and I. And so this week, Paul is going to shift a little bit before he starts really diving into answering the heart questions of those who are in Rome. And what he's having to do is he's having to answer this question to them. Hey, Paul, why haven't you come to visit us yet? Now, you've been all around the Roman world. You've started churches. We know who you are. You're famous. We long for you to come and visit us because of the things that you've done and the stories we've heard about you. Why haven't you come to visit us yet? Why haven't you come to Rome? And they've kind of got two things kind of going on within the church that they're wrestling with. They, they believe one of two things. Either Paul doesn't like them and isn't behind their ministry, and that must be why he hasn't come to visit us yet. Or he's afraid to come to Rome because it's the center of the Roman world where persecution is at its worst, and he's afraid to come there and face that persecution. And so Paul's going to have to answer these questions to them. as like, hey, look, There's a reason why I haven't been there yet. And there's a number of things going on in Paul's life at around the time where he pins this letter. He's just recently been released from prison. He's in Corinth on his way back to Jerusalem, and then he's going to head out on another missionary journey. And so there are many reasons why he hasn't been there yet. But the Roman church is, however, upset with him that he hasn't been there. And so here is what Paul says to them, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul says, let me start off by saying this to you guys, okay? All right. I am proud of you as a church. I am extremely proud of you Romans. I'm extremely proud of the job you guys are doing advancing the gospel in the center of the Roman world and in the capital, right? Because the church of Rome, as Paul says here, has a reputation throughout the entire world of their faith in Jesus in their community, even in the midst of the persecution that they're facing. I was like, look, guys, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by you. I'm not ashamed to come to you. Like, I don't dislike what you guys are doing. Your faith is known throughout the church. 
Right? I've been to Corinth, right? I've been to Philippi. I've been in the regions of Galatia. I've been in the Middle East, you know, doing work in Israel and, and helping the church there. I've been in Antioch. I've been in all these different places. And, and what I hear consistently over the course of time is that you as a church continue to declare the glories and the riches of Jesus even in the face of mass persecution from Caesar. I'm not embarrassed by you. I'm, ex- I'm excited about you. So this should immediately answer the question of whether Paul had some sort of vendetta against the Roman church. Far from it. He rejoices and worships God because of their faith. Guys, how great would it be to be known as a church, as a ministry that you're involved with, not for your cool worship music, not for, you know, the cool little things that you do here and there, but be known by this, your faith in Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, like there's nothing more fascinating to me than when I hear non-believers talk about a ministry and their answer is, those guys really love Jesus. They love Jesus. They don't even, and, and of course, when you hear a, a, a non-believer say something like that, they're, they're, when they're saying something like that, they're kind of confused by it. Right, they don't get it. But how glorious is that testimony? Those guys really, really love Jesus and they're sold out to serving him and his kingdom. Right, my favorite part of pastoring in a college town is that within this church, a lot of you guys are involved in other ministries outside of the church on campus or around the city. And I get to hear all these stories about what God is doing through you guys. And it's because of your faith in him and wanting to make him known that we get to hear those things. Oh, you know, my dorm, someone on my dorm came to Christ. Oh, someone on my intramural team, right, heard the gospel because I've been spending time playing on an intramural team with them so I can share the good news with them. Oh, my, my coworker at Chipotle, right, has been coming to my Bible study because I've been spending time with them outside of what I've been doing. Oh, you know, I've had an opportunity because I'm a barista, right, to share the good news with people when, when things are a little bit slower, right? Getting to hear all these different things, right? These stories of what God is doing to you, not because you're some amazing person or whatever else, but just because there's a faithfulness and a genuine love for Christ, that your work, that these different churches and their ministries are heard about, and and I get to rejoice in that, because I'm excited about what God is doing in you, and I'm excited for you. And Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of being around you guys. I'm excited for you, right? So much so that I pray for you guys almost without ceasing, that I, that I, I, I make mention of you pretty much every time I pray, that I'm thanking God for your, for your witness. And I'm asking God every time that I'm praying for you that he will somehow let me come to you and visit you. That I, I've, I've wanted to visit you guys for some time. And then Paul says this, but God has simply not allowed me to yet make that visit. But when I do come, I long to impart to you some spiritual gift. Paul's like a father longing to bring 
something to the church in Rome that might encourage them to continue to do the things that they're already doing. It's like, hey, I wanna, I wanna show up and I wanna fan the flames of faith that you have as a church, right, to encourage you. This is, this is why churches do the, a lot of the things they do. Some people are like, well, why do you guys meet for community groups? Why do you guys meet on Sunday morning? Why do you guys do things the way they do? The point of gathering together as saints is that we might be reminded of the glories and the goodness of God when surrounded by a world that tells us the exact opposite frequently. Don't believe me, guys? Watch the six o'clock news, right? The world is constantly trying to rob you of joy and tell you there's no hope. And we gather together to encourage one another knowing that is not true. That fundamentally, our God will triumph over sin and death and rebellion and we will worship and enjoy him for eternity. And so we gather to encourage one another. And Paul's saying, look, I want to do the same thing. I want to come and encourage you. I want to be able to share what God is doing in other cities. I want to share with you guys some things I've learned in ministry so you might be able to do this. Because I know how hard it is for you, Rome. You're in the center, right, of Roman life being persecuted by Caesar himself with the government there. I want to come to you and encourage you in your faith. And before I move on, I just want to pause for a moment. And think about the magnitude of what Paul is really saying. Think about this. He's never met many of the people in this church face to face, okay? And yet, what does he say he does for them often? He prays for them. He rejoices for them. He thanks God for them. He longs to see them. Complete strangers so that they might encourage one another in Christ. Because what does your involvement in the body of Christ look like? What does ministry look like for you, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that all of us, if we are in Christ, are made ambassadors of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Meaning ministry is not something that just gets done by staff people for different ministries. It gets done by the people who love Christ underneath the leadership and encouragement of people in those ministries. And so, so, what, what, can we, can, what can we take away from Paul's deep concern for a ministry that he's not even directly a part of? He's putting on display for us what ministry is supposed to look like. What the church is supposed to look like. What your Bible study is supposed to look like or your campus ministry is supposed to look like. It should be marked by cooperation. It should be marked by love. It should be marked by support. It should be marked by sincere love for Christ and people that encourages them by faith to trust in Jesus. The ministries that I see frequently that are the least successful are the ones that teach you to grow in your faith. You need to trust in that ministry and not in Christ. Right, ministry should be centered around Jesus and his work and what he's done and encouraging people in that. It should be a place where there's genuine concern for one another. 
from the most minute detail and thing you're worried about in your life to the most tragic thing that could possibly happen to you, that there's genuine love and encouragement and support coming within the church. It should be marked by being a place where both you can encourage someone else and also be encouraged by someone. Guys, one of the most beautiful things I've gotten to experience in my years here as the pastor of this church is seeing you guys step up to the plate when Jackie and I were in some of our deepest, darkest moments. Right, some of you guys probably don't know this about us, but years ago, before we had Josiah, we were, we, we were leading a community group, and Jackie was pregnant with our second child, and she miscarried. Not only that, within our own community group, which was only about 11 people, we had three different women miscarry within a span of two weeks. Right? Dark, dark season. Right? And the way that other community groups and those who were not even right in the same season of life came up around Jackie and I and supported us and loved us through that season was a beautiful example of God's grace and encouragement to us and, and, and encouraged Jackie and I to continue to trust in Christ and not in this world. Right, that God tangibly used you guys some of you guys in this room this morning to love us well during that season. And then not even nine months later, right, Jackie gave birth to, to Josiah. Right, she got pregnant very, very quickly. And then we immediately walked through another extremely dark season, right, where Josiah began showing e epilepsy, right, at a day old, right, and of his first 60 days of life, about 45 of them were spent at Shands. And our family was in complete survival mode. And what this church did is they told me to stop investing as much as I, as I was in the church. Men and women in this church stepped up to continue to do the work of the ministry and loved us well. People showed up to the hospital bringing us food, flowers, right, letting us go home and shower. Right, watching Gideon so that we could do things, right, that you guys, right, stepped in and were the church for us. We're this very thing that, that Paul is claiming that ministry is supposed to look like and what he wants to do. Guys, this is what the church strives for. And when we say the church, I'm not talking about this building that, that leaks, Right? We're probably all breathing in mold right now. I'm sorry, I hate to break that to you, right? It's really encouraging, right? Don't worry, we turn the AC on to kill the mold. It's okay. Right, the church is you. Right, when we say the church, I mean you. The word church in the Greek is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means a called out group of people. Right, for a purpose. That means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. Right, and that you get to partake in this encouragement. Can you commit to this? Can you commit both to allowing this to happen to you and also being able to serve others and see God work through you to do the type of encouragement that Paul is talking about here? And so, Paul's going to move on then and look at what he says in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul knows then if he tells him, look, I, I've longed to come to you and see you. I'm encouraged by you. I love you guys. I'm excited about what God is doing in the church in, in Rome. That they're gonna be like, well, wait a minute. Are you, are you afraid to come then? Are you, are you, are you worried that you're gonna get arrested and, and, and killed and tried? Are you afraid to come? And Paul says, no. I have longed to come to you, but, look what he says, I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Here's his translation. Guys, I'm a church planner. I'm a church planner. And you guys are already an established church in Rome, meaning I've got work to do. Right? When, he's, when he's talking about Greeks and barbarians, what he's saying there is I have to go to the, the, the places where the church is not now. That word barbarians Right, in the Greek, like it comes from this idea of when the Romans would hear like the, the, the nomadic tribes of the, of, of the north, right, many of which have German heritage, right? They said that the sounds that they made and the language that they had sounded like bar, 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 and that's where the word came from, right? That that's what it sounded like to him. Okay, and that's where we get that word from, that they are, they are barbarians, they're savages, they have no intelligent language. And Paul says, that's who God has called me to go to. That's what I'm doing. That I long to come to you, Rome, but God himself has called me to do other things. And so I'm walking and going to these places to plant churches. What a level of obedience. Right, as Paul desires to go to Rome and to spend time with them, right, committed Christians to be encouraged, right, he's so obedient to the call of Christ on his life that he even surrenders the ease of fellowship that he might have with other believers. This is what missionaries do, guys. Right, they leave familiar places, they leave familiar community and people they love so that others might have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And I don't just mean missionaries overseas, guys. When we moved here to start the church in Gainesville, there were 18 of us that came here to help start this church and not a one, not a one of us except for Jake Gregory had ever lived in this city before. We had people sell houses, we had people quit jobs and find new ones and take less money to come here because they were under the belief that God wanted to do something here and start a church that would proclaim the gospel and the good news of who he was. And we didn't know what we were doing. I tell people this story all the time. We were clueless. We had no idea what life in Gainesville was like. Proof of what this was. We used to do all sorts of like ministry stuff on Saturdays and we got here in the spring and it was super successful, right? We were leading people to Christ. We had people coming to these Bible studies, whatever, and we continued to do it throughout the summer. We're like, man, this is awesome. Like the weekends are great in Gainesville. Like people love doing things on Saturday. And then everyone disappeared the first Saturday in September. Like, well, hey, like what happened? Like we, like there was so much good stuff going on. And people were like, oh yeah, you're competing with the idol of the, the Florida football team. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, the city we had come from, we were Division I, AA, which, by the way, beat ECU yesterday. Go, go Dukes, right? That's right. Hey, national championship last year, by the way, right? Everyone knows. And I and just want to let you guys know, 
okay? Have you guys ever heard of the transitive property? Okay, let me guys explain to you why JMU should have been in the college football playoff last year, okay? This is real, okay? Iowa beat Michigan, okay? It was a top five team, okay? Um, Iowa was beat at home by North Dakota State, who was beat by JMU in the semifinals of college football, meaning that by the transitive property, we were a top five team and, and should have been vying for a spot in the real college football playoff. And we won the national championship. So I'm still under the belief that there really wasn't a national champion last year because they should have had us face off against whoever won that Clemson and Alabama game last year. Okay? But either way, right, here was the reality of the town we lived in. No one really cared. Like, oh, Jamie's got a football game. Cool. Woo-hoo. You know, like, did they win? Right? No one really knew what was going on. In Gainesville, this city is nuts. There's like 90,000 people walking down University Avenue, right, trying to all fit into a building so that you can all be 145 degrees together in the hot sun cheering for that football team, okay? I've been here, by the way, I've been here five and a half years. I have yet to go to a football game. And here's why. I like air conditioning. It's great. It's fantastic. So I sit at home and I watch the game. And then when things are going bad, I can just turn it off and go get a drink of water whenever I want. And I don't lose 30 pounds of water weight standing there watching the team play. Right? But here's, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Though. This is what we learned when we came to Gainesville. Right? We were missionaries and we had no idea that at certain times of the year, the culture of the city drastically shifts. And so it was hard for us. We did all this work for about seven months and then it was like hitting a reset button on ministry because we didn't know what we were doing. We had to adjust and figure out new ways to, 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 to reach people, to do things, and, and to really not put a ton of resources into something that wasn't going to work. And it's hard. Ministry in Virginia was easy for us because we'd been doing it for 10 years. We knew what we were doing. And yet now we've got this beautiful picture of in the midst of that being obedient to what Christ was calling us to. And you guys, so many of you are the fruit of God's call on our lives. And many of you guys are like family, like brothers and sisters to me, right? Because of this, this beautiful thing that we get to do. And this is what Paul is saying, like, I have to do this. It's hard, but it's what God's called me to do. I would love to come to Rome You guys love Christ. We can encourage one another. We could preach the gospel together. We could do all these things. But I have to be obedient to what God has called me to do. And that's to declare the gospel to both the Greeks and to the barbarians. To remind them of the bad news of their sinfulness and standing before God. And yet the good news of what Christ has done for them and their inheritance in him. I want to come. I can't come yet, but rest assured, it is God's will, not mine, that I haven't come. I was like, look guys, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of you, and I'm not afraid to come. I'm not afraid of this. And you want to know why, he, why we know for sure that's what he means? Look at what he says in verses 16 and 17, which ends up being the thesis for the entire book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right, verse 16, right there, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel message. I am not ashamed that God has called me from death to life in him. I am not ashamed of the work of the church. I am not ashamed that I've put all my hope and trust for my eternity and my life here on this earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid to come to Rome because Caesar's persecuting the church because why? The gospel of Jesus Christ has power. As I said a couple weeks ago, that the reason why the church doesn't grow is not because we become intellectually more intelligent. It's not because of the decline of morals in the U.S. It's not because prayer was taken out of churches. It's not because people stopped going to youth group. It's not because we don't listen to old-time gospel music anymore. These are not the reasons why the church is failing to grow and make inroads both politically and on a cultural level in the U.S. Guys, the number one barrier to the gospel not growing, both in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, is because people like you and I fail to believe and recognize the power that the gospel has. We fail fail to trust it. We can pay lip service to it, but we fail to really believe in its power. Right, that when, when Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. You guys notice that? The power of God to move entire cultures, people, to change people is in the message of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. That word power is the Greek word dunamis, right? Do you know what word we get from that? dynamite. Paul's saying the type of power that is in this message can be compared to dynamite. Can Can be compared to the type of destructive power we see wrapped up in the military. That that is what the gospel message has, right? It's powerful for salvation. It makes a way for you and I to be reconciled to God when there was no other way. Think about that power. That the good news of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and then his death and resurrection has the power to reconcile you to the Father when there was no way to get to him. None. That's power. Look at what else. The gospel has the power to persuade people. People whose hearts are hardened to God who have experienced some of the hardest things that people have to go through that the good news of God's love for them in Christ might persuade them. The gospel has the power to encourage when you're at your lowest point and you don't feel like going forward any further. You could be reminded of what God has displayed with his love for you in Christ. How he's demonstrated that love for you and the giving up of his son and you could say, well, have I reached that point yet? That God has done that for me and that it might encourage you to continue to press forward. Right? The gospel has the power to heal broken lives, relationships, marriages. That if God himself might reconcile you to him through the life of his son, how much more so could he do in the life of your marriage if you simply just trust him? 
The gospel has power to reconcile the worst of enemies under the common banner of a deep and sincere love for God. Paul says, why would I be ashamed of the gospel? Why would I care what Caesar thinks? Why would I care what the Greek intellectuals think? The message of the gospel is a life-changing, beautiful message that reorients everything if you understand it properly. Guys, here's how I know the gospel to be real. Here's how I know that Jesus Christ was a real person who came 2,000 years ago, lived a life, taught, had followers, and then suffered at the hand of wicked men and women, was persecuted and then crucified unjustly then was buried and then rose again three days later to prove that he had satisfied the wrath of God and had given to us his righteousness so that by faith we might be forgiven and accepted as heirs with God as his sons and daughters. Here's how I know that message to be true. Eleven years ago when I first came to Christ, all of that was very intellectual to me. And I loved apologetics. I loved reading books like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Right, I loved reading, jo- uh, jo- was it Joshua Harris's book, uh, More Than a Carpenter? Right, I, loved, I loved reading these books that uh, could explain why intellectually and philosophically the, the gospel makes sense. You know what drives me now? The experiences I've seen of God radically changing and reorienting people's lives, including my own. That the gospel, the power that Paul is talking about here has the power to change lives and I've seen it happen over and over and over again. When I first moved to Gainesville, we came into contact with a guy whose brother was literally tattooed from his, from his big toe to his, the top of his forehead. You guys might see him here every once in a while. He literally is completely covered in tattoos. He was a member of a gang here. He ran around with guns. He'd somehow avoided jail multiple times. I saw God call that guy out of that lifestyle and radically transform his life to where his life is now centered around preaching the good news to others. And that he does ministry to people in some of the hardest parts of this city and some really hard places around this country. God radically changed him. It wasn't some special words that I had talked about, right? It was the power of the gospel revealing to him his need to be rescued by God and that God had done so. I've seen drug dealers in my college town back home who went to the university and were failing out would have thousands of dollars rolled up in their glove compartment, was involved in making local pornography, was threatening the lives of people who weren't paying him and had his own life threatened by the drug dealer that was over top of him because it's all hierarchical. 
I've seen him both give his life to Christ, see his life be radically transformed, see him become the father of two beautiful babies, seen his family come to Christ because of his witness and testimony, and see that men have threatened his life over and over again because he left the drug trade, and at every time he's felt threatened or been threatened by one of them, God shows up and his life has been spared. I've seen men and women who grew up in the church and thought they had all the answers but were some of the harshest and cruelest and most legalistic people to be around have their hearts softened by the good news of Jesus Christ and seen them become better husbands, brothers, sisters, wives, and friends. All because they met Jesus and what he had done for them. I've seen husbands and wives ready to throw in the towel. I've seen men claim, I don't love her anymore, I just want to go to bars and hook up with women. I've seen the gospel change them to surrender that lifestyle as sinful and to reconcile and heal that marriage. I've seen people hurt claim that they will never forgive somebody. They'll never forgive a dad. They'll never forgive a mom. And then they experience Christ's mercy and reconcile that relationship. Because that is the power of the gospel. I still love apologetics. But the, the greatest apologetic is the lives of people drastically changed by a loving and caring God. Because to that, there is no academic rebuttal. Either their life was changed or it wasn't. And in every one of those scenarios I just shared with you, it was. And all of this was done by God. All of it. Every single story I shared there is both true, and if you went to the person who experienced, they would say, God changed my life. Jesus radically changed me. Paul says, why would I be ashamed of that? Why would I be ashamed of what God has done? There's nothing on earth that can compare to it. Absolutely nothing. And then he reminds them in verse 17. Look at what he says. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That, that term there, faith for faith, is kind of like a, a play on words in, in, in the language there. Here's basically what Paul is saying to the readers. He's like, look, I know you guys have heard a lot about the God of Israel, Yahweh. I know you've heard many things about him over the years and, and how someone comes to know him and, and how we stand before him condemned because of our sin. It's like I'm here to tell you that what has saved people since the creation of the world has been faith. 
been faith from the outset, and that's why he shares with us Habakkuk 2.4, right? He says, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. That's Old Testament, right? You need more proof that what has saved people over the course of human history in, in the eyes of God is their faith. Look at the story of Abraham. Right? Abraham's called to, to leave his family and go out to a land that he doesn't know, which by the way, in that time would have basically been suicide because you're leaving right, the, your military protection and everything else that is being provided and offered there. And God says, go out and Abraham trusts him by faith. And then God, God says to Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation of you. Right? You will have a child and I'll make a great nation of you. And Abraham's like, I don't have kids and I'm really old and says so my wife and she's barren and we can't have kids. Like, we can't do any of these things. Right? I don't know what you're talking about. And God says, well, I'm gonna make it happen. Look at the stars in the sky. If you can count them, that's how many your descendants will number. And it says that Abraham trusted in the words that God had said to him, and God did what? Credited it to him as righteousness. Guys, the way that God has always operated is that we trust in him, and that declares us not guilty. And so Paul's saying, look, the, the power of the gospel is that righteousness before God, being declared not guilty, being able to spend eternity with him, experiencing this power is done by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That is how this happens. So guys, here, here's how we're gonna sum up kind of what we, we've seen this morning about what, what Paul is saying to us. If Paul can say, what could I possibly have to be ashamed of in the good news of Jesus Christ? Can you not say the same thing? What, it, what is there to be ashamed of? What is there to be afraid of? Paul's like, I, I know I haven't come to see you, but it's not because of my fear or my anxiety or my shame. It's because God's will for me. I'm not ashamed of what God's called me to. You shouldn't either. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes how you love and who you love and why you love. The gospel even helps you define what love really is because we throw that term around and like it's some sort of emotional feeling and God says, no, love is serving others that don't deserve it. Love is choosing to serve other people and put their interests above your own even when they don't deserve it. That's what love is. The gospel changes the way you serve because you serve him first that whether you get praise and acclamation, whether someone loves you, you serve it anyway because you are doing it for him and his glory. The gospel changes the way you view yourself. It helps you to walk that fine line of not loving yourself too much but also not hating yourself. Because the gospel tells you, hey, you're jacked up way more than you think you are but your God loves you way more than you think he does. Right? That the gospel can simultaneously help bring you out of the pits of self-love and self-worship and yet also rescue yourself from depression and self-hate. The gospel can help you change the way you care about the things of this world. 
It can remind you to be engaged and care, but not care too much. The gospel changes in a way that no other thing could because it has power to rescue you and declare you as a son or a daughter of God. God, here's, here's my plea to you this morning. We're about to take communion. Okay, we do that every week here at Aletheo. We've set up two more tables, right, to kind of speed up the process a little bit. There's two tables in the back and here in the front, right? And I explain this almost every week, right? When we take communion, here's what we're doing. We're saying, all of my hope, all of my trust is centered around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that when we partake in communion, we're identifying that that's where our hope is, that without Christ's flesh and blood poured out for you and I, we have no hope. But instead, we do have hope because God has promised us grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And so we take communion after coming to him in a time of reflection, in a time to confess sin and repent of it. We come up and we don't take it in disappointment or discouraged, we come up and we take communion and we rejoice in what God has done for us. And instead of being guilty and in shame over our sin, we confess it freely knowing that God promises to forgive us in Christ and then we take his flesh and his blood and we worship him for giving his life for ours. And so here's what I would ask you to do. As the communion represents a tangible way that we can reflect on the gospel and the power that it has. As you take communion this morning, would you thank him and worship him? Knowing that it is only because of him that you are free and forgiven. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know what I mean by that language, chief, supreme person in your life, right? King, boss, president, principal, CEO, whatever term you wanna use as the chief thing in your life, garnering the most attention and your affection. If you haven't done that by faith yet, do so. There is no other way on earth by which men can be saved other than in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, the path is wide that leads to destruction, but the way to life is the narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow gate and path. And life with him while not always perfect by our own definition, is filled with hope and joy and obedience because it's built upon the promises of God and not our own work. Take communion this morning, worshiping him and enjoying him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the riches and the goodness that you have shown us in your son. Thank you that it was your perfect plan 
to rescue us from our own sin and destruction through the crucifixion and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you that the gospel is not just sufficient for salvation, but it's sufficient for life now, for obedience and joy in the here and now, to change lives and reconcile. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for everyone here. May we worship you and you alone because you are worthy. And I ask all of this in the name of him, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys.